0: It's Friday, March 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Another heavy hitter has gotten into the race. Beto O'Rourke has officially announced his bid for the presidency in 2020. There has been months of speculation as to whether he would jump in and what he has to offer. As a former congressman from El Paso, he is uniquely positioned to make the border one of his top priorities. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us to tell us what Beto is all about. Next, the largest college admission scam ever prosecuted by the Justice Department is a story that just keeps on giving. We are now learning what started off the whole investigation. A Yale dad who was being investigated in a securities fraud case offered up a tip to get leniency in his case. He wore a wire, offered a bribe to a Yale soccer coach, and now we have 50 people charged with crimes, lawsuits filed, and the fate of students caught up in the scandal. My producer Miranda joins us to break down the latest. Finally, happy birthday to the World Wide Web. This past week, the web celebrated its 30th birthday. But the web's inventor is not happy with the way things are going. Tim Berners-Lee says it is no longer a force for good. Elizabeth Schulze, tech correspondent for CNBC, joins us to say happy birthday to the web. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Amy and I are happy to share with you that I'm running to serve you as the next president of the United States of America. This is a defining moment of truth for this country and for every single one of us. The challenges that we face right now, the interconnected crises in our economy, our democracy, and our climate have never been greater. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. We have another person jumping into the 2020 presidential election race. It's former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He uh, just had had a new video that came out announcing his bid. This is one of those big names that a lot of people were waiting for. Uh, After he narrowly lost his Senate race to Ted Cruz, instantly, before he even gave his concession speech, people were already trying to position him as a possible presidential contender. But what do we know about Beto O'Rourke and his, his new announcement?
1: One thing that's interesting about Beto Rourke is that he's actually one of the more moderate candidates that we've seen throw their name into the ring recently. He, While he's definitely a Democrat, he's a little bit less progressive than some of the other candidates that we've seen. We've seen a lot of the 2020 candidates fully embrace the Green New Deal and take really hardline approaches to immigration. And Beto, while he does say that climate change is going to be an important part of his campaign, and an important issue that he would address as as president, he has not fully endorsed the Green New Deal. And he's just a little bit less to the extreme left than we've seen a lot of the popular candidates who who we've been talking about so far. And of course, he's just become this media darling, in a sense, is the word that a lot of people use to describe him. Since running for Senate, he has really attracted a lot of media attention and a lot of nationwide attention, which is something that's very difficult to gain, especially as someone who no one had heard of just a couple years ago.
0: His resume is a little thin. He has some success as a businessman. He only served three terms in Congress, but everybody just kind of fell in love with him during that race against Ted Cruz. And everybody's looking to him to be kind of that next big star. Obviously, we went through it with President Obama, also kind of a thin resume, but he just had this uh, air about him and people really wanted him to to win. And I feel it's kind of the same thing with Beto O'Rourke. With the primaries, things like that, the candidates usually always tend to be very far to the left or on the Republican side, very far to the right. The general election, everybody moderates because you want to get all the people in the middle. So does he have this potential? Can he win people over in the middle?
2: It
1: certainly seems likely that he would be able to win more of the moderates and maybe pull a few you know, Republican votes over to his side with the way that he has voted, how he's not so extreme to the left. But of course, the problem will be winning the primary where it's a democratic base. And we've seen the Democrats move left over the past few years and even the past few months just looking at the kind of policies the other 22 candidates are endorsing like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, as I mentioned, and issues around immigration and all these other issues. We've seen Democrats continually move to the left. And so the big question with Beto is maybe he is the best candidate to go up against Trump in a general election, but can he win the primary? still the question. The vast majority of these candidates have been building on on the far left movement, people like AOC and other people who have kind of been pushing the party to the left. We've seen a lot of the 2020 candidates sign on to that agenda, but very few, maybe Klobuchar is one of the other moderates and now Beto have kind of tried to find a middle ground. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic to be watching as we head toward 2020.
0: It seems like his big issue will be the border wall. He is in prime position. He's from El Paso, Texas, a border town. Mm he's already positioned himself in complete opposition to the wall and you know all the immigration stances that President Trump has taken. So it seems like he's in a key position to argue that point, at least.
1: He's been a very vocal critic of the border wall that Trump has endorsed. And he has also said that the U.S. should not criminalize anyone who requests asylum between ports of entry. And so he has definitely taken a very opposite approach to immigration than the president. That's one aspect where we've seen him differ quite substantially from Trump. And of course, significant given the fact that he's a representative from Texas, a border state. And I think that adds to the fact that this would probably be another big issue for his campaign, a big issue that he would run on. And it's an issue that is increasingly taking a higher spot on the list of issues that voters care about.
0: How has the president responded so far? He had kind of a funny reaction to Beto O'Rourke's uh, announcement video.
1: Yeah, of course, the one thing that Trump was most concerned about with Beto was the way that he was using his hands in the video where he announced that he would be officially running. It was something that if you were following along on Twitter. A few people mentioned that it seemed a little bit unprofessional and a little <laughs> bit wild with his hand gestures. He is but of very course, excited. Was he was very excited. And it is something that Trump decided to talk about. He said, I've never seen hand movement. I watched him a little while this morning, and I've never seen anything
0: like it. Moving on to just his cam- campaign and campaign style. He said he's not going to accept money from any PACs, corporations or special interest groups. But he also said he's not going to employ any consultants and he won't employ pollsters also
1: he's really taking a very different strategy when it comes to campaigning. And we saw this a little bit in his 2018 campaign. He is very much an off-the-cuff kind of candidate. He's even said himself that he doesn't necessarily prepare for a lot of the speeches that he's given, that he kind of goes with the flow and responds to questions that are being asked of him. And of course, a lot of this reflects something we're seeing nationwide and also specifically among Democrats is this growing distrust of institutions, economic powerhouses and financial institutions and moving away from the money and politics murkiness of the political system in D.C. And so we're seeing that. And I think it's really interesting that we're seeing this trend because it's also something that, in a way, Trump ran on successfully, the the drain-the-swamp mentality. I think there are two sides of the same coin, a similar issue. And we're seeing Beto also have this more casual, relaxed, and seemingly more natural campaign style with, you know, Instagram Lives and using social media to be the real candidate up front to voters and also moving away from the traditional institutions. That have
0: surrounded the campaign. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Our investigation began last May after we uncovered evidence of a large scale elaborate fraud while working an unrelated undercover operation. Following 10 months of intense investigative efforts, the FBI uncovered what we believe is a rigged system. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. Wanted to get a follow-up on the big college cheating admission scandal that's been going around. I mean, it just blew up completely. There's so many things happening with it. There's so many side angles and stories. We won't go into some of the details. We did that in another uh, prior episode of the podcast but people are calling it the largest college admission scam ever prosecuted by the Justice Department. 50 people in total are charged. William Singer is the ringleader of this. He's basically helped parents cheat their kids into various high-profile colleges. But how did the whole thing get started? It's a classic case of rich people selling out other rich people in order (laughs) to get a break. It started off with a guy named Maury Tobin, He's a financial executive. He was under investigation. What do we know about that, Miranda?
3: Exactly that. Maury Tobin is an L.A.-based financial executive, and he was being investigated for a securities fraud case. He was doing something called a pump-and-dump investment scheme where these stockbrokers inflate the price of a stock and get get super, super high, jacked up, and then dump it all, and they can sell it at a profit. Tobin, when he was being investigated by the FBI, said, hey, I know I'm in trouble for this one thing, but— There's this other thing I know about, and it's a huge deal. And if you guys will give me some leniency on this pump and dump stuff, I'll give you the biggest Operation Varsity Blues, blah, blah, that you could even imagine. And that's how this whole thing happened. He attended Yale, and he told investigators that the head woman soccer coach took a bribe to get his daughter into the school. And from there, the whole thing just unraveled.
0: Yeah, the soccer coach was Rudy Meredith and told Mr. Tobin that He could get his daughter into Yale in exchange for $450,000.
3: They met in a hotel room in Boston, wearing the wire. The cops are listening, and he gets Meredith to take this nearly half million dollars to put his kid on the soccer.
0: And then he turned, and then he went on, got with another California family, saying, I'll get your kid into Yale by pretending that the kid was a soccer player. And that family paid Mr. Singer, the ringleader of this whole thing, $1.2 million. (laughs) And the soccer coach's share was four hundred grand of that. So, boom, right there you have the building blocks of this thing. There's been a bunch of fallout because of all of this. First and foremost, there's some lawsuits that have been filed by a parent and then a pair of students.
3: Part of it is this $500 billion civil lawsuit filed by a parent on behalf of her son accusing all these defendants of defrauding and inflicting emotional distress on everyone whose rights to a fair entrance to college were stolen through their conspiracy. The lawsuit filed by the two students that attend Stanford say that now their degrees have been devalued and that potential future employers won't know whether their degrees were merit-based or money-based.
0: One of the big questions that everybody has, and it's one of the most intriguing questions, What's going to happen to the students? William Singer said that he helped the parents of, of 761 high school students cheat on the college admissions process. What's going to happen to them?
3: It's still going to be a case-by-case case basis review. So far, USC has said that all applicants connected to this cheating scheme will be denied admission. I don't know what's going to happen to the students who are already attending the school. Yeah, We know already that Lori Laughlin's two daughters, Olivia and Isabella, who were both attending USC have officially withdrawn. They've removed themselves for fear of bullying. They don't want to deal with fallout from the other students at school.
0: Right. I mean, I can't imagine that with how high profile they are, people are going to know who they are, are going to recognize them, present right. them there on campus. The kids that are there case by case, if they're a student in good standing, they have good grades, they're competent. I mean, you know, maybe it is worth them staying there. Who knows? But that's going to be a decision for all the individual schools and the celebrity angle, we're talking about actress Lori Lachlan, Aunt Becky from Full House. <laughs> she is losing out on a lot of money now. Her daughter is also losing out on a lot of money. She was uh, big in the Hallmark Channel movie series. She was on a series called Garage Sale Mystery, When Calls the Heart. Hallmark said they're dumping her.
3: Yeah, she was a staple of these Hallmark TV shows. When Calls the Heart had pretty great ratings this article from the Hollywood reporter says that their series average is better than 2 million viewers for initial airings. That's huge ratings. And it's like a pioneer drama.
0: She was taken into custody on Wednesday and freed on $1 million bond. And part of her condition of a release, she said, I'm working. I have contractual obligations. She to, was in Canada. Yeah. To be on these shows, but now not they anymore. dropped her. So not anymore. And then her daughter, Olivia Jada, as we said, she's one of the high profile people involved in this she's losing a big makeup deal as well.
3: Yeah, she's a social media influencer and she had a makeup partnership with Sephora brand. She had a highlighter palette, Olivia Jade by Sephora, and that's been dumped. Sephora announced
0: on Thursday. And the juiciest thing with Olivia Jade, when this whole thing was going down, she was actually on the yacht of Rick Caruso, who's on the board of trustees for USC. At first, it sounds like something crazy is happening, but she was actually on spring break with Rick Caruso's daughter. Apparently they're friends. Let's go on spring break on the big super yacht. Very cool and all, but what's the uh, quote, Miranda? My favorite line in the article is, Olivia is off the yacht. (laughs) So I'm sure we're going to see more and more coming out of this big college cheating scandal. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar.
2: In his own words, the World Wide Web has dysfunction now, and he feels that the Internet is almost broken from what he originally created. And and
0: basically, it needs to be fixed. Joining us now is Elizabeth Shulze, tech correspondent for CNBC International. This past week on March 12th, we celebrated a birthday. The World Wide Web turned 30 years old. It's not even a millennial, but it's really done so much for us. Is it's changed the way, really, we've done everything. It's changed the way we shop. It's changed the way we connect with each other and communicate with each other. It's changed the way we get information. I don't even remember how we did it before. You know, We had to go to encyclopedias and, and do real research. Now we can just click into a web browser and find whatever we want. The reason why we're talking about this also is that Tim Berners-Lee, who is the British computer scientist who... Created the World Wide Web. He's kind of this father figure for the internet community. He's been knighted by Queen Elizabeth, named one of the one hundred most important people of the twentieth century by Time Magazine, and he's not really happy with the direction that the World Wide Web has gone. What do we know about this?
2: Yeah, that's right. So, in his own words, the World Wide Web has dysfunction now, and he feels that the internet is almost broken from what he originally created, and and basically it needs to be fixed for. A variety of reasons. Tim Berners-Lee started out with this kind of vision that the web would be this open internet that anyone could use, anyone could access. And he feels that there's a lot of barriers right now to the internet that are causing it to be not always used for good.
0: He identified three sources of dysfunction And one of the first ones was the deliberate and malicious behavior that state-sponsored hacking online harassment. These are one of the things he's not happy about that has grown out of the World Wide Web.
2: Right. So he talks about how there's these hacks that we see from governments, that we see from malicious actors all around the world, really. And his point is that this is not what the web was created for. Obviously, this is a consequence of the fact that anyone can get on the internet and get on the web and use the web. His point there is that there needs to be laws, there need to be regulations that can make the web a safer place in the same way that we have regulations not online. I think that One of the realities of the internet is that it was very, very unregulated when it first started, and that allowed a lot of companies to take advantage of it, a lot of of innovation in the tech sector, but there wasn't a lot of rules and regulations. And now it's sort of time where people are realizing we might need to catch up and have some of these sort of digital rules that are the same that we would have online. So, for example, he's saying that we need to have digital rules that are the same that we would have offline. So, for example, something that would prevent online harassment. We have rules against harassment in day to day life, but less restrictions online. And that's one of the points that Berners-Lee is making here.
0: One of the other things he hits on is the perverse incentives uh, with uh, ad based revenue models. I mean, these are the things we're going through with Facebook and Google and getting all of our data, selling them to third parties so that they can target us with all the ads. Uh, On one hand, yeah, maybe it is that pair of shoes that you did want to buy, something that you were looking at, but who knows where our data ends up being in the long run?
2: One thing that Tim Berners-Lee talks about is how Google and Facebook reward clickbait in their models. So if you get more clicks, then you get more money if driven to your site. And that's something that unfortunately can result in fake news spreading, it can result in misinformation. And the, the idea is that big tech companies, especially the Google, Facebook, Twitters of the world need to change their attitude and change their entire revenue models to be less rewarding towards just driving clicks and more focused on substantial conversations and ideas that would be more productive and less hurtful and harmful to individuals and to companies and to society.
0: The last source of dysfunction that Tim Berners-Lee pointed out was the unintended negative consequences of the web design, uh, like polarizing discussions taking place online. I mean, this is one of the hardest things to do. You can go online and there's tons of places where you can express your free speech, things like that. But people do take it too far. They troll people.
2: Yeah, we've seen this big debate with, again, some of the big tech companies, but the YouTubes of the world trying to balance Free speech and the the idea that you can put your own video out there and anyone can watch it, which is a novel idea if you think about that versus 30 years ago when the web didn't exist. But trying to balance that with how you regulate harmful content and ultimately saying this is something that we're not going to allow. And this is an issue that a lot of tech companies are really struggling with right now because they don't exactly know where the line is between free speech and something like hate speech and and regulation on that, and I think that's something that's only going to become an issue going forward. It's it's something that we're seeing more and more of, and and it's there's no clear kind of set of guidelines around that. And that's something Tim Berners Lee says we need to start working on now.
0: Yeah, and he said something that rings totally true. If we give up on building a better web now, then the web will not have failed us. We will have failed the web. I mean, it's an amazing tool that we have that we can accomplish a lot with, but if we don't work to make it a better place for everybody to be part of and open for everybody, it's gonna be tough. Elizabeth Schulze, technology correspondent for CNBC International. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much.
0: That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.